You know, untold millions over the years have been spent in search of peace, uh, personal peace, peace between nations, diplomats negotiating peace, um, the court system's jammed with cases that are a result of a lack of peace um, for years and years. Uh, that has been the goal, but no one's ever been able to attain true peace, lasting peace, from purely a secular standpoint, peace between individuals. Christians aren't exempt from the turmoil that we see in a sinful world, right? I mean, we live in the world. We experience the, the difficulties of living in a fallen creation. And one of the consequences of living in a fallen world is a lack of peace in many instances. And so we experience that. But peace should be, true peace should be a hallmark of a godly person, a Christian, a follower of Christ. And that is the fruit that we look at, that's the flavor rather, that we move on to this morning in our study on the fruit of the Spirit. If you'll remember, we're in this series called Fruit Gushers, and the theme of our series is that the fruit of the Spirit flows in us from the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it flows out of us for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. That should be our goal, is that we display the fruit of Christ in our lives so that we advance the gospel, and we do it for the glory of God. We, a couple things that we remember is that this is about authentic Christian living, living my life as God would intend, reflecting the character of Christ, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, again, for His glory and for the advancement of the gospel. So, with that in mind, let's look at our passage, of course, the fruit passage, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, which we've talked about, joy, we talked about last week. Today we move on to peace, then patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. A couple of things. We cannot cultivate this fruit of the Spirit on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. Uh, It's the work of the Spirit in our lives. On the other hand, we can't just, we're not supposed to just sit back and expect the Spirit to cultivate this fruit while we do nothing. That's not the idea. It's both and, not either or. We have a responsibility in it. It can't happen apart from the Spirit's work in our lives, but we are to do our part in living out uh, these characteristics of the uh, spiritual fruit. The Spirit of Christ produces it in us, but the fruit of the Spirit is produced as we live for the Lord. Something else to remember, the secret of the flow of spiritual fruit in our unity with God and with others is submitting, is yielding to the Holy Spirit. We have to live submissively. And then we need to remember also that the fruit is singular, not plural. If I'm a follower of Christ, I'm going to display all of these characteristics, all of these flavors, not just a select fruit. One of the ways to think about it is to think about it as one fruit with nine flavors. That's the way we should think about it. Uh, We've looked at love. We looked at joy. Today, we look at peace. We know that God is a God of peace. He brings peace. He gives peace. He took the initiative, as a matter of fact, by coming to earth, As Jesus coming to earth as a human being, living a sinless life, taking on our sin, paying the penalty for our sin, he did that so that we could have peace. He took the initiative to provide peace 
for us, peace in our lives. And then he's commanded us to let peace rule in our lives. Peace is actually threefold, okay? There is peace with God uh, that we can have through salvation. Jesus dying for our sins, being raised from the dead, taking on our sin through forgiveness, we can now have peace with God. Before that, we're separated from God by sin, right? But we can have peace with God. Then there's the peace of God. So we can have peace with God in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but then we can have the peace that God provides in life, peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We know that we, can, we don't have to worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, present your request to God, and then verse 7, the peace that passes all human comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can have peace in life. Regardless of circumstances, we can have peace. So those are two, and we've talked about those in the past. Uh, But then there's a third form of peace, and that's peace with others. And I believe this is really, when we're talking about living out peace, this is what uh, Paul is talking about. The primary idea that he's, he's uh, talking about in the fruit of the Spirit. Because again, it's about advancing the gospel. It's about living with others and displaying the characteristics of Christ in our lives. And so there's peace with others. And that's really where we're going to zero in. All of these are important and all are connected, by the way. I can't have peace with others if I don't have peace with God and the peace of God. They're all connected. I can't have uh, peace in my heart if I don't have peace with God because I'm at war. I'm separated by sin if I haven't been forgiven. So all of these things are connected. But again, I believe the third is the primary focus of Paul and the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to do something for me, okay? Would you take your hands and put them together? All right, rub them back and forth like this. All right, after a few seconds, what happens? Yeah, your hands get warm, right? What's that called? You can stop now. I mean, some of you may be a little cold. You can keep going if you need to. But that's friction, right? When two, when you rub your hands together, two things rub together like that, it creates friction. And that's what happens when people, God's people, are not at peace with one another. There's friction. And after a while, if you keep doing that, it's going to get uncomfortable, right? And, and frictions uh, it can be a good thing, but in this sense, when there's a lack of peace among followers of Christ, it is not a good thing. And that is where our focus is going to be. We should have a desire to live at peace with others, and we should work for peace among Christians. Since God has gone to all the trouble to make it possible for us to have peace with him, his peace in our hearts, we are commanded and we should work at peace with other people. He calls us to do that. But it doesn't come naturally, does it? I mean, in in our own sinfulness, uh, we tend to think of ourselves before we think of others. We don't We don't think about working on being at peace with other people. That's why we have to be reminded in ways like this to do that. And so Paul says, you know, we need the the Spirit of God in our lives to give us the ability to have peace, but then we have to work at it. Again, it's both and, not either or. And one of the best places to think through what this really means is to go back to Romans chapter 14. That's where we were last week just briefly. We just took a few verses from there. We're really going to dig in to Romans chapter 14 and the first part of 15 today. There's division. If you'll recall, there's division in the Roman church. And part of the reason in the early church there was such division was because there were people coming from all different backgrounds. 
And in the Roman church specifically, you had Gentiles that had been saved that had never had to follow any strict regulations as it related to holidays, festivals, diet, all of those things. But you also had Jews that had been saved who had followed, had been required to follow the law uh, very much so. And so there was a conflict in the church. You had those who knew their spiritual liberty, their spiritual freedom in Christ, who knew they didn't have to eat a certain diet. Um, They could eat meat, for instance, that had been sacrificed to idols because they didn't believe in those gods, and they knew there was nothing wrong with those meat, and they could get it, that meat, they could get it at a a discount at the market. But then you had uh, Jews who were younger in the faith, most likely were Jews saved out of uh, and and had been had accepted Christ and but thought they still had to follow uh, those regulations. Um, you had younger people in the in the faith who looked at eating that meat and and thought, hey, if they're eating that meat, that means they have worshipped those gods, and so there was a risk of them uh, falling and stumbling. You had those who were saved who still believed they had to to adhere strictly to Jewish holidays, and so there was there was infighting going on, there was bickering going on over these things. Those who knew they were free to do these things, did not understand why those who were younger, weaker in the faith, as Paul says, uh, felt like they had to. And then you had those who were weaker in the faith, uh, saying, criticizing those who were doing those things and not celebrating Jewish holidays. And so there's, there's friction. There is a lack of peace going on in this church. Now, let's be clear here. We need to strive for peace But this is not a peace-at-all-costs mentality. It's not that we're throwing everything out the window just for the sake of peace. We're not compromising the Word of God. That's not what Paul is suggesting that they do. Because, listen, there are things that are clearly defined in Scripture that we need to follow. And there are some things in Scripture, like what's being argued over in the Roman church that are not clearly defined in Scripture in terms of you have to do this, you don't have to do this to be holy. A little side road here, because I've gotten a lot of questions about this over the past couple of weeks. This past week, we had our, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention took place, and they took up some, some really hot-button issues at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, they voted on a resolution, for example, dealing with critical race theory, among other things. They did, it, it dealt with any theory, any uh, uh, social type of answer, solution that, that would not, um, answering race or any other issue that's not based in Scripture. Um, another hot-button issue uh, is the role of women in terms of pastors in the church. And, and again, I've had a lot of discussions over the past couple of weeks, and, and those, those types of things, there are things clearly defined in Scripture that are addressed in Scripture and things that aren't. I believe, for example, critical race theory is clearly addressed in Scripture and has no place in the context of the church because it contradicts a biblical worldview. And there's a, it's very complex, okay? And I'm learning about it. And as some of you who I've discussed this with know, I'm learning about it more uh, and really over the past few months. But one of the main problems with that is that theory is that it tells me to form my identity in something other than Christ. And Scripture teaches us that our identity, if we try to form our identity on, based on race, ethnicity, or any other thing, that's contrary to what we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. For all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ, Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave, free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Our, our identity is in Christ. 
Another controversial issue is, is the office of overseer in the church. And, you know, listen, we, uh, as, a, as a pastor in the ministry, I know would be on a shadow of a doubt that I could not do what I do without my wife right beside me. Uh, her role is much unseen. It's behind the scenes a lot. But I would not be able to do what I do. But it is also very clear in Scripture that there are God-designed roles within the family. The, this is Father's Day. We are called to be the spiritual leader of our home. And it is also very clearly defined in Scripture that the office of overseer and pastor is reserved for the man. And those roles carry over, right? It's not demeaning to women. Our roles are different. It's not that, that one is even uh, more important than the other. Again, I couldn't do what I do without God giving me Mandy to serve alongside me. I certainly couldn't be the husband and father that I am uh, without her providing leadership in our home with our children and walking alongside me in the ministry. So it's not demeaning. There are different God-ordained roles in the family and in the church, both male and female. And why do I mention this? Well, because, again, there are things in Scripture that we know are clearly defined, that we see debated in our, in our convention, in our culture. But then there are other things that aren't aren't as clearly uh, defined in Scripture that we see deba debated. And we need to be able to tell the difference. We need to have, be able to communicate why we believe what we believe. And it's not just, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not enough. We've got to be willing and able to engage our culture in issues that are being discussed from a biblical perspective and be equipped to deal and answer with these issues, not just, hey, this is right, but why is this right? From God's word, why is this right? Why is this wrong? We can't just leave it to, hey, it's, I, I, I believe it because this is what I've always been taught. The answers uh, from years past won't, won't cut it. We've got to be willing to engage from a biblical perspective. But I'll tell you, there, you know, we can know what's right and we can know what's wrong. We can I mean, truth is real. It's not relative. We can know and we can explain. And as long as, at least, as long as I'm the pastor, we're always going to use at Wall Highway this as our standard of right and wrong. And we're going to stick to that. We're not going to compromise the Word of God, but we do need to be able to engage our culture. 2 Timothy 3 tells us Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be uh, be complete, equipped for every good work. But hear me, even when we're discussing some of these issues like critical race theory, women in ministry, or any of these issues, it's again, it's not just about I'm right and you're wrong. The purpose of those discussions needs to be reconciliation with those who are lost with God, uh, salvation, our desire should be to show them the truth so that they can be at peace with God. And those within the body of Christ who have gone astray and gone against the word of God, it needs to be about redemption and reconciliation for them. It's not just, hey, I'm right and you're wrong. We want them to experience God's best. We want to experience God's best. And if there, there, there comes a point even within the church where these discussions become damaging. And I'm seeing this happen over some of these issues. Critical race theory, for example, you can have two people who are absolutely opposed to it from a biblical perspective, but suddenly one person decides you're not as opposed to it as you should be. And so I'm more against it than you are, and then it becomes damaging. And that's when those discussions cross over into what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. We allow division to take place. It's no longer about the gospel. It's no longer about advancing the kingdom. It's about, hey, I'm more holy than you are. And that's not the point. 
The point is truth above all else. The point is the gospel above all else. And that has to be front and center. So while we engage in these discussions, and we will, and we won't shy away from these issues, we have to remember that it's the gospel above all else. And we cannot lose sight of that. All right? So I'm going to get back on our road, but it deals with this. All right? It deals with what we are talking about because we need to know the difference between things that are clearly defined in Scripture and not. And let's be clear, what's taking place in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is speaking about issues that are not clearly defined in Scripture in terms of what to eat, what not to eat. The things that we have freedom to decide for ourselves unless it causes a brother to stumble. Personal convictions that are based on where a believer is in terms of his spiritual growth and the knowledge that he or she does or doesn't have. Those convictions will change over time as you grow in in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to these areas that are not clearly defined, personal convictions and how they may conflict with others' convictions we simply need guidance, and that what, that's what Paul provides for us here. He gives us guidance. So let's dig in. Romans chapter 14. The first lesson he teaches us is that we have the same Lord. We need to remember, we are all one in Christ. Those of us who belong to Christ, we have the same Lord. We should be united in Christ. Paul is talking to those who are strong in the faith. Those are those who understand their liberty. The weak in the faith don't understand or don't have as much knowledge about liberty. They think they still have to adhere to these days. You can't eat meat. You can only eat vegetables. All of these things that we've already covered. The weak in the faith were immature believers. They weren't as mature as those who were, or at least they didn't understand their Christian liberty. The weak Christians, so you had the strong Christians who were arguing with the weak Christians about what they should eat, not eat, holidays they should celebrate, not. And then you had the weak Christians who were criticizing the strong Christians for eating meat, for not celebrating these holidays. So there's friction. So Paul is saying, you need, he starts off, you need to accept one another. You need to accept one another. Live at peace with one another. God has received you, so you should receive each other. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Romans 14. Accept accept anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues, things that aren't clearly defined. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. So it's, it's not our responsibility to define uh, what qualifies a person for fellowship within the body, right? I mean, God's defined that in Scripture, all right? And we certainly should never define those things based on our own, our own prejudices or our own convictions that, that God has not set as standards for, for qualifying a person for fellowship. If we do that, that's going beyond God's word. When God sent Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the church criticized Peter because he ate with those new Christians, right? In Acts chapter 10. However, God had obviously accepted those Gentiles because he had given them the same Holy Spirit that he had given uh, Jewish believers. And so, um, but he, he received criticism for that. But even Peter didn't get this right all the time. He didn't obey this truth consistently because we see Paul rebuking him later because he wouldn't fellowship with Christians at Antioch So in, in Galatians chapter 2. So God had to show both Peter and, and Paul that Christian fellowship was not based on food or religious calendars. And this is Paul sharing this truth with us in this passage. In every church, 
There are going to be people who are young in their faith, who don't understand, aren't, aren't at a point of knowledge that, that others are. There are going to be those who are more mature in the faith, that know more, who should be discipling those who are young in the faith, not arguing with them about right and wrong over, over issues that aren't uh, doctrinal issues. Paul says the strong look down on those. A.T. Robertson says it's best to understand it this way. They treated as nothing those who did not eat. They were treating them like they were insignificant because they simply didn't agree with them about what to eat and what not to eat. So they looked down on them. Those who are mature should not criticize the weak. They should disciple the weak. That's part of the problem here, right? They're not coming alongside them and teaching them. They're criticizing them. Uh, God has received both the weak and the strong, so we should receive each other. Look at verse 4. Who are you to criticize another's household slave? Before his own, Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here you have those who are weak in the faith criticizing those who are stronger in the faith. So the reverse is happening too. You guys shouldn't be eating those things. You're not holy because you're eating this meat. You're not celebrating these holidays. And so it goes both ways. We see the young in the faith criticizing those who are more mature. God is our, our master. We are his servants. We should submit to him, follow him. We shouldn't try to take the role of master in somebody else's life. That role belongs to God, right? We hold each other accountable. We speak the truth to each other. But when it comes to issues like this, we need to have humility. The word servant here, the way it's used suggests that if we as Christians were busy working for the Lord, we wouldn't have time to judge or condemn each other over some of these secondary issues. We would be focused, our heart would be focused on where, where it should be. And that's what Paul's t- trying to say. Hey, you guys, if y'all were focused on the Lord and serving him as much as you were on criticizing each other, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a problem here. But that's not what's happening. Again, we're not talking about basic doctrine, like the doctrine of sin, salvation, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture. We're not talking about those things. That We're talking about secondary issues, non-essentials, that, that are a matter of personal conviction. And the bottom line here is that only Jesus has the right to be Lord of of my life and your life. And we should follow him. Look at verses 5 through 9. He is the authority in all matters. One person, verse 5, considers one day to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for uh, for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat. Um, Yet he thanks God. For one of us lives to himself, none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and came to life for this, that he might rule over both the living and the dead, the dead and the living. Paul is explaining this a little further. He's saying, what makes a particular food or a particular day holy? It's because we relate it to God. It's not about the food. It's not about the day. It's about it being related to the Lord. And so he's saying, you know, somebody, some, one person may treat one day as more holy than the other, but if his motives are, are pure and he really is trying to honor the Lord, that's fine. One person may treat one food as as Uh, sacred more than the other, but it's not about the food. It's about thanking God and giving glory and honor to God for that particular food. Uh, You know, the Christian who eats meat gives thanks to the Lord. The one who eats only vegetables gives thanks to the Lord. It's about the condition of your heart. Paul's point is this. 
people with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can both be perfectly right with God. My personal conviction about non-essentials. It's about me being right with the Lord. And the reverse is true. Okay, I shouldn't judge you if, if you hold a conviction different from me. But here's, here's the flip side. If I have a conviction, even over a non-essential issue, and I refuse to follow that, that's disobeying God. You know, I have to, if God convicts me over something, I need to follow that. I don't have to force you to do that if it's a non-essential, but I need to follow it myself. The phrase to be fully convinced is important here because it has to do with conviction and motivation. Here's what it means. The primary motivation for every Christian's actions, my actions, your actions, should be to honor Christ. Plain and simple. That should be my motivation. Everything should fall into that. With my life, everything that we do. We should honor Jesus Christ. Our actions should be motivated not by legalism, not by prejudice or some whim that we have, but to honor Jesus Christ. Let's face it, some of the things that, that, that we do in church are not essentials, right? They're tradition, but it's not a, an essential doctrine. Some of the things we do in our lives are, but we have to hold those beliefs with humility and convictions, understanding that not everybody's going to agree with all of what we do personally or even corporately we have to let jesus be lord of our lives look at that last part of verse 8 again whether we live or die we belong to the lord i believe if we would just remind ourselves of this truth before we criticize a brother or sister there would be less criticism less friction in the body of christ we all belong to the lord and by the way we belong to each other we're a part of the same family we belong to one another Um, We would certainly experience more peace, and that's the goal. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. He gives them a reminder in verse 10. But you, why do you criticize your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all will all stand before the judgment seat of the tribunal of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's reminding you, you're going to have to stand in judgment before God. This isn't uh, a life or death. This isn't sin. This is the judgment of the righteous. And there we will be held accountable for our actions, for our works. That word tribunal or judgment seat in the Greek is bima. It referred to the Greek games where uh, they would disqualify people for not, uh, for not following the rules. Uh, judges would also give rewards to those who did well in the game. So the idea here is that we will be rewarded based on what we did or didn't. Lack of reward for what we didn't do. It's not about salvation. It's about being judged by our our faithfulness. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, I'm not going to read through all that, but Paul uh, addresses this again, and he talks about, he makes the point that if we build with cheap materials, they will be burned up. They will not last in eternity. If we use precious, lasting materials, they will last forever. Plus, we will be rewarded or lose reward for what we do or don't do. And so our works will be judged. We need to be investing in eternity. We need to be focused on the essentials and hold the non-essentials in proper perspective. Paul's stressing the importance of judging ourselves before we judge others. And we need to make sure that we are faithful in our own lives before we pass judgment. Not that we shouldn't hold each other accountable or even judge each other from time to time, but we should make sure we are right before we try to pass judgment on someone else. Here's the point. Make Jesus Christ Lord of your life and let him be the Lord of the lives of others as well. Um, You follow the Lord and you let others follow the Lord, and if we work together focused on that, then we will hold each other accountable in the right way. 
The lordship of Christ is the foundational truth for the unity of the church. I've used this illustration before, but I have a tuning fork. And if you want to tune several instruments together, you need a standard. You use a tuning fork or whatever the digital equivalent of that is now, but you don't try to tune those instruments to each other. You take one one tuning fork, you tune those instruments to this, and as a result, they will all be in tune with each other. Well, the same is true for us. If we all try to, to work at being at peace with one another without that, that unifying standard, we will not be at peace. We'll never get there. That's what's happened, what the world has tried for centuries. However, if we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, the result is that we will be at harmony, at peace with one another. It's about lordship. It's about submission to Christ. Next, Paul reminds us that we are governed by the same love. We're governed by the same love. Love should be what directs us, the love of Christ. Now, if we stopped at verses 1 through 12, you could, you could form a philosophy that, hey, you do what you do, I do what I do, and I don't have the right to tell you what to do, you don't have the right to tell me what to do, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from truth is relative. Right? And that's where a lot of people are. But Paul, thankfully, doesn't stop there. In the next few verses, Paul reminds us that if we love each other, we want to build each other up, we want to disciple one another and encourage each other to spiritual growth. Look at verse 13. Those who are mature in the faith have an impact on those who are younger in the faith, whether they realize it or not. Therefore, let us no longer criticize one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in your brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean itself in itself. Still, to someone who considers the thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother is hurt by what you do, what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. doesn't matter whether you have the freedom to do it or not. If it causes a younger brother to stumble, don't do it. Do not destroy that one Christ died for by what you eat. Now, two things. The words... The, the word for stumbling block here means something that is carelessly left around that you could trip over. You know, your kid leaves a, a toy in the floor, you trip over it, right? Skateboard. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into the garage and nearly killed myself on a skateboard left in the garage, right? Carelessly left behind. But the word pitfall means something intentionally left to trap someone. And unfortunately, there are those who do that as well, um, but regardless of which it is, whether it's carelessly, I'm just not thinking I'm causing a brother to stumble, or I'm attempting to do it, it's serious either way. And what, even if it's something I'm free to do, like eating a certain meat or not practicing a specific holiday, honoring a specific holiday, if it causes a weaker brother to stumble, Paul says, don't do it. You should, you should honor. It's very closely related to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul deals with the principle of idle meat. Again, that meat in the market was a lot cheaper. Other pagan religions had sacrificed that meat to an idol that wasn't real, and Christians said, hey, we can get a bargain here. It's good meat at a discount price. We don't believe in those gods, and technically they were right. They could eat that. It wasn't going to cause them to, uh, to be damaged or, or dirty or whatever, but those who were new in the faith saw them doing that, and they thought they were worshiping those gods So they, because many of them had come out of that that idol worship, right? And so it was causing the younger brothers and sisters to stumble. In verse 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 1, Paul says, about food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge inflates with pride, love builds up. He's saying you need to consider the other weaker brother or sister in love, and he's saying the same thing here. A strong Christian has knowledge, but if he doesn't practice love, his knowledge will hurt the weak Christian. 
It's tempered. It's balanced. Knowledge is, should be, by love. Martin Luther had it right when he began his treatise on the freedom of a Christian man. And this is a typo in here, all right? It's my fault, um, but I'm going to correct it. He said, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none, but a Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. Yes, we are free. I have Christian liberty to eat things like food, sacrifice, meat, sacrifice to idol, but I willfully subject myself to those who are younger in the faith to look out for them so that I don't cause them to stumble. We are all free in Christ. Our only bondage is our love for our fellow brothers and sisters. That's the point that Paul is trying to make here. Martin Luther says that well. We should all remember that it is not our display of Christian freedom that shows the world that we belong to Jesus. What is it? You will know, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It's not me practicing whatever freedom I have. It is the love that we have for one another that shows the world that we belong to Christ. Romans 4.14, nothing is unclean itself. No foods are unclean. No days are unclean. No people are unclean. Those who are in Christ have been cleansed from sin. What something does to a person de- determines its quality. Uh, somebody, some person may be able to read a certain book with no problems. The other person, there may be something in that book that tempts them to sin. It's what it does to you that makes it clean or unclean. But here's the point. It's not about how it affects me. I should consider how what I'm doing affects those who are younger that I should be discipling in the faith. How what I'm doing might affect someone who doesn't know Christ and how it might affect my witness. That's what should be on my heart and mind. Is what I'm doing going to cause my brother or sister to stumble? Will it hurt him or destroy him? By encouraging, by doing that, is it going to cause him to stumble? Here's something to remember. Whatever it is that you have the freedom to do, that we have the freedom to do, it's not worth doing if it causes someone weaker in the faith to stumble. Whatever it is, no matter whether it's harmless or not, if it causes someone else to stumble who's weaker in the faith, it's not worth. Look at verse 16 of Romans 14. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. You know, we have a tendency as Christians to major on the minor. We do that. We get caught up in secondary issues. Um, And even sometimes we don't handle the essential issues correctly. And we get caught up in discussions about discussions. And we get caught up in these, these minor details. But Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. In 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not in fear if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. It's not about externals. It's about internals. We need to be focused on the internals. Those things, righteousness, peace, joy, those things should be top priority in our lives. And working at peace with others, it's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 5 on the screen, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into his, this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If each of us would submit to the Holy Spirit, make godly living, the fruit of the Spirit, a priority in our lives, we would be much less likely to fuss and fight over minor issues. We would see more peace in the church, less controversy. 
within our convention even. I mean, there, in churches in America, um, we would see less friction, more peace. And if we're going to have peace, and this church, thankfully, is a peaceful church right now. If we're going to maintain peace, we need to get our, make sure we keep our priorities straight. Focusing on the Lordship of Christ, the essentials of our faith. The Word of God is our guide. And we also need to help each other grow. Look at verse 19. So then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. It is a noble thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. We all need to grow, whether you're mature or immature in the faith, old or young in the faith, we all have room to grow, right? Can we agree on that? We should never get to a point where we think we've arrived spiritually. If you get in that position, that begins complacency or begets complacency, and that's a dangerous place to be. We all have room to grow. We should never get to that point. If someone is, the, the, is weak in the faith and we are stronger in the faith, we deal with them where they are, we meet them where they are, and we disciple them in the faith. You know, I learned something this week. Draft horses. Anybody ever heard of a draft horse? They are known among other things, by how much weight they can pull. One draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. you believe that? 8,000 pounds. Now, how many do you think two draft horses can pull? You would think 16, but, but you know, it's gotta be, there's got to be a catch or I wouldn't be bringing it up, right? 24,000 pounds. One draft horse, 8,000 pounds. Two draft horses, 24,000 pounds. Somehow, working together... They can pull more together than they can by themselves or what you would think they would be able to do together. It's the miracle of teamwork, right? Working together. Here's one of the important things that Paul is saying in this passage. It is that we need one another. Number one, you belong to Christ. And number two, you belong to each other. We need one another. And we can't forget that. We who are immature, who are mature, help those who are immature grow. And those who are immature need the mature to help them grow. There's discipleship. We learn from each other. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we have convictions, and it's important to have convictions, but we hold them loosely. Look at the last few verses of 14 here. That you have a conviction, keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. But whoever doubts stand condemns, stands condemned if he eats because he is eating. His eating is not from a conviction, and everything that is not from a conviction is sin. There are truths that we all need to accept, clearly defined in God's word. We do not compromise God's word. There are also areas of honest disagreement within uh, things that aren't clearly defined. Personal convictions, then they should not be made a test of fellowship. That's the issue Paul is saying. He's addressing here. So we need to put others above ourselves. We, the Lordship of Christ, submitting to the Lord, putting others above ourselves. We meet people where they are, disciple them so that they will grow in their knowledge, grow in grace. Uh, they will become godly. They will experience God's plan for their lives, their, God's best. That's our goal is to see others grow in the faith. And if I have to give up something that I know I'm free to do in order to encourage a brother or sister to do that, I'm willing to do that. We may need to give up some things that we're free to do if God calls us to. But our desire is to see others come to know Christ as the gospel above all else and grow in their faith. We need to have our convictions, but they must be governed by love. And then finally, we are shaped, Paul says, by the same Savior. We need to remember in all of this that we are shaped by 
Jesus Christ. He is our model. He is our example. Look at chapter, go over to chapter 15. Look at the first few verses there. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Jesus Christ, promoting peace, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Therefore, accept one another just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. So, you know, Paul was definitely a strong believer. In the faith, and he identified himself as a strong believer in the faith. But he's dealing with the problem of selfishness here in the Roman church among Roman Christians. True Christian love, though, is not selfish. It puts the other's needs above itself. I put the other's needs above myself. If I have brotherly love, I'm going to want to share with my brother. I'm going to want to serve my brother. I'm going to want to build up my brother or my sister in Christ. I will be willing to come alongside the younger believer and help him, meet him where he is, and disciple him in the faith. I will be willing to do all of those things to see that person grow, and I will not want to do anything that causes him or her to stumble. And Jesus, Paul is saying, is the perfect example here. He paid an incredible price so that we could have peace with God and peace within ourselves and peace with each other. He paid an incredible price to do that. And so why, how how dare we not work to achieve peace and enjoy the peace that God has given us? When you think about the price that God paid by giving his son, that Jesus paid by giving his life, how could we take for granted the peace that God provides? We need to be willing to love each other and follow the example of Christ. Just like loving parents make sacrifices for their children, mature believers should sacrifice to help younger believers grow in the faith. But this is one of those things that's easier said than done, right? Maintaining, putting others, maintaining peace, putting others' needs above myself, natural sinful tendencies of the flesh. So two sources of power as we finish up to draw from, to, as we attempt to live at peace with others. Two things. Number one is the Word of God. You want to draw from the Word of God. Just like we, we dug into Romans chapter 14. Uh, passages of Scripture on how I can love others. Examples of Christ. Uh, taking on the character of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit. All of those things. But also prayer is vital. That's the second tool. Source of power. As we grow impatient, discipling younger believers... We disciple them from the Word, but the Word of God can also be an encouragement to us as we grow impatient, discipling young believers. And we see Paul closing out this section praying for the Romans. We need to pray for one another as we attempt to disciple and grow in the faith. He prayed that they would experience spiritual unity and peace with each other that only God could give. We as a church, whether it's essential issues that should not be compromised Our personal convictions, this is our guide. The infallible, inerrant Word of God. And we should never compromise the Scripture. God has given us instruction in His Word, and we will continue to follow His Word. If we don't, then we will not have peace 
within ourselves. We will not have peace with God in terms of our relationship with God being affected by our disobedience. And we certainly will not have peace and growth and unity in the church and to the glory of God. But if we follow the Lordship of Christ and if we follow his word and work at peace with each other, we will have growth and unity and peace to the glory of God. Now, I want to use this box of Kleenex to show you a very important truth that we hopefully have learned today. And that is this. You know, amazing invention, the box of Kleenex. Did you realize that? Amazing. When I pull this, what happens? The next one comes out. Doesn't matter how many times I do it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, right? Now, why does that happen? Have you ever opened up a box of Kleenex? It's amazing. I mean, it's pretty intricate. I mean, all of these Kleenexes, and I can keep doing this. I'll use them. I won't waste them. But I can keep doing it, right? Why? Because they're all connected. And in the body of Christ, we all have the same Lord. We are all connected. And by faith in the salvation, in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides. And so, because these Kleenexes are connected, when I pull one up, it pulls the next one up. We have a responsibility to come alongside each other and pull each other up. Not tear each other down. Not discourage. Not cause each other to stumble. We are connected. And it's a beautiful thing to see people from all different backgrounds, different uh, races, different ethnicities, different uh, backgrounds in terms of where you grew up and the family you came from, different opinions, even different convictions. We're different, yet we are united in Christ. And if we can hold on to that and submit each of us to the Lordship of Christ and to one another willfully putting each other above ourselves, we will enjoy peace with God, we will enjoy the peace of God, and we will enjoy peace with each others, with each other. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the peace that you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. You have made peace possible because, Jesus, you died for our sins. You paid the price for our sins so that we could live, we could be free from sin. And the bondage that results from sin. We thank you for giving us that peace. And I pray that if there's someone here today or at home who has never, wherever they're streaming from, wherever that is, uh, or in this building, if they've never received, if they've never truly experienced peace because they haven't received salvation through you, Jesus Christ, that they would cry out to you where they are and just simply recognize as we all have to recognize that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And, and Lord, all we have to do to receive salvation is believe, Jesus, that you died for our sins, that you were raised from the dead and invite you into our lives to forgive us of sin. Lord, I pray there's someone here today who hasn't done that, that they would come during this time of commitment and let me share with them how to take the next step. For those of us who are at peace with you, Lord, what are we doing to achieve and maintain peace with each other? Are we putting others above ourselves? Are we willing to work to follow you and even give up things that we're free to do in, other, in order to encourage each other to grow in the faith? Lord, there are different ways this could apply to our lives. I pray that you would speak to us individually as we seek you in this moment and show us how to apply your truth and what we need to do in response and obedience to your word this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to respond. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our time of invitation?